potential and possibilities, discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show today, bringing you another really awesome guest uh, involved in creating a better tomorrow and getting this really interesting themes that we haven't touched on as much on the show lately. Uh, today we have the honor of being joined by Leslie Orn, who is President and Chief Executive Officer of Trinity Life Sciences. They are a a really fast-growing consultancy in the healthcare industry. Uh, they have this reputation as a strategic partner, a trusted strategic partner uh, that delivers evidence-based solutions for the life sciences industry, including advisory services, insights and analytics, as well as technology solutions to ultimately meet the need of, of established pharmaceutical companies, as well as emerging biotech companies. Uh, Leslie oversees the delivery of, of the integrated consulting insights and analytic services to Trinity's various customers. She's been a critical advisor to literally hundreds of, of their customers across thousands of projects during her time with the company, spanning array of therapeutic areas and different business models, and has supported literally billions of dollars of strategic transactions and the launches of dozens of products, uh, giving her a really unique uh, perspective on the industry. Uh, Leslie graduated uh, summa cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa from Dartmouth, uh, where she studied biology. Uh, she's also a, a major All-American uh, uh, member of their, their sailing team. Um, a lot of interesting themes in the area of registration, commercialization, reimbursement that we're going to be getting into today. Uh, we're honored to have her. Leslie Orn, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and talk to us for a little while. Thanks so much, Ira. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, love to start off with the uh, the beginning to this story, Leslie, because you started off fast and furious uh, at Trinity, uh, coming out of college, uh, and you never looked back. Um, give us a little bit of your background story, if you would, because clearly this is something you you were excited and found passionate in and, and made it your career. Uh, talk a little bit about your background, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Ira. Happy to. Um, so I, I, I think the, the theme here is I'm a bit of a recovering scientist. So uh, I'm a scientist, a biologist in particular by training, um, having spent a number of years in the lab. So, um, you know, I was a young person then and um, had great aspirations of who knows what, curing cancer, uh, you know, eradicating AIDS and a number of other things that that people I think dream about when they think about being a scientist. But after a couple of years in the lab, I realized that um, the lab bench was not the right place for me. So I kind of felt, um, you know, things were things were getting a little narrower. I wasn't solving world world peace or you know global health. In fact, and we were just playing around with clams, and uh, you know, it was kind of getting the world was getting smaller and smaller mm -hmm. instead of bigger and bigger. So 
as I started to open up the aperture and think about what was next, um, you know, I, I found these these consulting firms, these sort of interesting little hybrid companies that weren't actually making drug product. They weren't in clinical service like a physician, um, but they were sort of staying in touch with the science, but actually figuring out what it meant in the world and, and helping mm -hmm. companies figure that out for themselves. So I actually joined Trinity um, on September 11th, 2001. It was an auspicious, I suppose, or um, unfortunate start date. But, you know, I did tell myself on that day that if I didn't love what I was doing, I had better move on because, um, indeed, you know, you just never know what life throws at you. And I had a lot of friends in New York, as we all did. And, um, you know, things were really tumultuous. So I guess the the, the good side of that story is I, I have really loved what I've done um, since then. And that's what's really held me at Trinity for going on 22 years now. So, when I started at Trinity, we were 13 people. I was an analyst. I crunched data. I interviewed physicians. I interviewed patients. I made slides. I played with Excel and even other data management software like MS Access back mm -hmm, then, which mm -hmm. was sort of a, a yep. dinosaur today, right? Um, but I, I think I really cut my teeth on learning the basics of the industry. And you know that was in 2001 in the era of the small molecules and the era of Lipitor and Viagra and, you know, Remicade was just a glimmer in everybody's eyes. I mean, we were talking about small molecules um, and, sure. you know, uh, it was it was a very different time. But, um, you know, over the past 22 years, I've uh, worked together with the rest of the management team at Trinity. We've, we've grown the company significantly. Um, and really, my history is really intricately linked with the company's history. Um, mm -hmm. We went from 13 people when I started to over 1,300 now. We have 12 global offices. We have 300 um, amazing life sciences clients that we uh, are happy to call clients across a spectrum of biotech, pharma, med device, diagnostics. Um, and really, uh, you know, I, I think we've, we've become a real thought partner to the industry. So mm -hmm. my career is very intricately linked with the, the development of this company, this Trinity Life Sciences. And um, I'm now proud to be the chief executive officer here. And um overseeing really all that's going on, but very passionate about uh, our purpose, which is that we believe every decision impacts a life and it's our job to help our clients make the right decisions so that we can get these drugs to patients. Um, mm -hmm. So um, that's just a little bit about my personal um, career. I think, uh, no, it's not the same job for 20 years, though it's the same <laughs> company name. It's It's certainly been a wild ride. Absolutely. Absolutely. I gotta tell you, I was number, I was a I was really good at Microsoft Access, just to to, to throw oh, yeah. that in there at, at the time. But you me know, too. Back now, <laughs> but, but 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 thinking back now, you know, going back, you know, I spent my own time in, in the commercialization space, and thinking back, yes, I mean, what you were just mentioning, I uh, I remember looking at the top ten blockbuster lists back then, and Lipitor and Viagra. I look at it nowadays, I, I don't recognize any of this stuff. What is this? And what are these biologics? So yeah, I mean, I, I've seen you know that transition, you know, just as sort of an outsider. Now uh, we got some really expensive. Of drugs over here and the gene therapies and the CAR T. We got interesting companion diagnostics and stuff that you know, digital things that don't look like drugs. Um, from your perspective, specifically looking at sort of that commercialization phase of things, you know, after we do all our clinical development, we get ready for market and go to market. What are some of the major sort of changes that you've seen from on that side uh, in terms of, you know, this isn't just about sending out a Salesforce anymore and detailing as much Lipitor as we can. 
things have changed. Talk a little bit about what you've seen in the last couple of decades as far as that piece of the uh, the evolution of the space. Oh, yeah, Ira, I think we could talk about that topic all day. Um, you know, but I, I think what we have seen, as you rightfully stated, is that the scientific innovation has just taken off. And really, I feel like we're in a bit of a renaissance on the science side, right? It, we went through the era of small molecule, then we went to monoclonal antibodies, thinking that those were the, you know, the the next best things in sliced bread. Um, and now we're all the way here. We're playing with oligonucleotides. We're playing with RNA. We're playing with gene silencing, gene editing, um, all of the gene therapies. We're we're playing with cells. We're reprogramming cells and using them as as drugs. Um, and yeah, it's been it's the amount of scientific innovation is just hard to wrap your brain around. And I think, you know, we, we really thank all the scientists who are at the bench doing all of that work to bring those forward. But on the commercial side, I guess I would argue in, in our, our thesis is that the commercialization process, which I define as the process by which you get the science from the bench mm -hmm. out into the wide, wide world, it has not kept pace, right? Scientific innovation has far outpaced commercial innovation in terms of the, the ways we distribute drugs, the way we get those drugs to all corners of the globe. Um, we've, we've not made the same type of progress. So you talk about the commercial model and yes, sales forces, DTC campaigns, direct-to-consumer campaigns that people are splashing all over TV. This is what, what you think about then. And it's still what you think about now, right? I mean, I think we still see um, pharma companies spending on big sales forces going out with kind of a sort of a brute force approach. In many cases, we still see drug ads that, you know, with a whether or not they're effective, I guess we'll leave that for another day all over the airwaves. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think our, our thesis is that the commercialization side of the world has not innovated fast enough. And, and that's part of our collective job. Um, is to help them think about how we can use things like data and analytics, right. how we can use things like artificial intelligence, how we can use generative AI, how we can use some of these things to be smarter on our commercialization. We don't need 2,000 sales reps out there anymore. Half the doctors don't even want to see a sales rep. Um, these, are, these are facts that we know are true. You also don't need to spend $150 million on a Super Bowl campaign. Um, you know, I think, I don't know about... We've done the analysis. You don't see much return from those types of mm. engagements. You don't see a pop. Um, but why are pharma companies still spending like that? Right. So, you know, we we keep trying to, to talk to them about other ways to do that, right? Other ways to bring in innovations to the market. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the other big change that we haven't talked about is this is not just an HCP world anymore, right? It's not just a healthcare provider world where right. Dr. Smith can write whatever script he wants, depending on which sales rep he likes best. Um, this is an ultra-managed space. And the emergence of the payers, the insurance companies, Medicare, Medicaid of all types, has really changed the industry, has changed the commercialization process. I'm not sure for the better, but it's mm -hmm. changed it, right? And I think now, um, as commercialization experts you know, the, the concept of market access or actually getting your drugs reimbursed is just as important as making physicians aware of, if not more important than making yep. physicians aware of the drugs. So pharma companies have a very intricate 
web to weave now to get their drugs into the right hands of the patients. So a lot of changes, very a lot of players, a lot of forces at work in this market. Um, but one thing for sure, I don't think that pharma companies have quite figured it out. Um, we, we did an analysis. Um, we, we, we run it about yearly where we actually look at the performance of that year's vintage of new drugs. We look at how they're performing against how they were supposed to perform, i.e. Wall Street's targets for those drugs. And we find that more than two thirds of each year's vintage of drugs fail to hit expectations. Mm. So there's just sort of, well, you could say, well, maybe the expectations were wrong, possible, always possible, right? In today's market, things are different, but it's probably also because, you know, we just haven't quite figured out how to navigate the complexity of commercialization. And um, I think that's really where, you know, we're, we're trying to really help our clients figure that out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's, um, if you want, let's drill down on some of these topics because, and and we'll obviously we'll put the link to to Trinity in the show so everyone uh, can can get a spectrum for, for everything you're involved in. But I thought we could drill down on some of these. And I thought a great place to start would be where you just ended up in terms of, uh, again, technology and the commercialization process. And, you know, we talk a lot about uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning on the show, primarily, again, from the perspective of the, of the early stage stuff, right? Can AI help me pick this better drug candidate? Can AI do something that, uh, you know, replaces maybe all the animals we use and help us figure out if something's cardiotoxic earlier on in the process. You're using AI on the other end of that value chain. And I'd love to, you know, you have a, a, a range of services in the analytics. You have something known as Trinity AI, but then you also have, you know, the, the forecasting and the commercial analytics and things with Omnichannel, uh, which we talked about a little while ago on uh, with the Walmart folks. Um Take yeah. us into the world of data science uh, at, at Trinity and a little bit about, if you can give us any examples that aren't confidential, that'd be great, but how AI ultimately uh, improves the efficiencies in, in, in that very important part of the, the early and later commercialization processes. Yeah, great question, Ira, and you're right. We, we sort of pick up the baton, uh, you know, somewhere in the phase two and onwards phase. Um, but so, so let's talk about the data environment first. I think... Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, we are extremely lucky in our industry that we have data coming from every corner of the universe. We have it coming from every drugstore. We have it coming from every patient and every insurance company. And you know the, the sort of prolific the, the prolific nature of all of the data in and of itself is a challenge, right? Mm-hmm. How, how is an average, you know, even smart people who know how to use Microsoft Access, you know, how is an average person supposed to navigate this data environment? So. Um, you know, first and foremost, I think it's a question of how do we get this data more systematized? How do we wrestle it down or wrangle it down into a usable format? And that in and of itself, I think pharma companies are just starting to get. And if you're in a med device company, it's probably even further because I'll tell you, they're, they're further behind in actually getting that data into usable format. But, um, you know, I think the most interesting data that that we have is data as an industry is, I think, data that's sort of custom built for the commercial use cases. So we can see every interaction between an HCP with a patient. We can track those patients. We can actually find out about their experience, their journey um, through care. And we can see all of that in the data. Um, and we can fill in the blanks by doing things like, um, you know, interviews with those patients and, you know, kind of filling in those blanks. But I think 
what we're trying to do with that data collectively as an industry is again, use it to get the right drugs from the clinical phase to the right patients, the right time at the right price. Um, and I think that's really where data comes in for us. So the question of the right patient, um, you know, for instance, um, we have a, an infrastructure built at Trinity, which a lot of our clients are using that actually allow us in a real time way to use that data to find patients that might be appropriate for your drug. So let's take cancer. We've got a patient with um, lung cancer, line one. We can see that they are declining. It's a trigger that they're probably going to be moving to a second line. Um, you know, that's a chance for our drug to save a life. Mm -hmm. um, so let's find that patient at the right time and get them the right drug. Um, with rare disease, similarly, um, we've got infrastructure to identify patients who might have very rare conditions that perhaps their HCP has not even picked up yet. So it might not be that they are diagnosed with Pompeii or Fabre. It might be that they're just seen as sort of failure to thrive. And we can see it in the data and hopefully send an intervention to that physician to say, maybe you should check that patient. That patient might have a rare disease. Um, and of course, try to get that patient to the right diagnosis and ultimately the right treatment. So data and AI enable that finding of the right patient and helping accelerate identification of, of the condition and potentially optimization of the drugs. So that's one use case in the commercial sphere that we see the data, you know, helping us to make better treatment decisions for the patient. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, um, we can use that data to figure out how can we best interact with an HCP? Some HCPs are, are young and hip and they want to use social media and they don't ever want to see a live you know, rep ever again. Mm -hmm. Some docs want to see that rep. They want to have those in-depth conversations. We can use data and AI to predict these HCP interaction patterns. So if you know that you have a doctor who doesn't want to see a rep, don't send a rep. What a waste of time. What a waste of money. Um, send them the digital campaign that will be more effective um, simultaneously, vice versa. So we can use data to actually help personalize how we interact with HCPs to kind of cut through the noise of what they're hearing. And they're getting bombarded from all angles. But, mm -hmm. you know, we have exciting treatments in our industry that they need to know about. And we need to cut through the noise to get that information into their hands. So that's another way that we can use data um, and AI in particular to really learn about how to get through to HCPs um, and mm -hmm. to help them. And then the mm -hmm. third use case that we're using a lot is, is to help figure out how a payer and a pharma company or a drug provider, how they can kind of meet in the middle from a price perspective. Right. You can use data to see outcomes for these patients. We can actually create more of either a risk sharing or an outcomes-based payment method using this data, mm -hmm. rather than just saying, here's a gene therapy, 2 million bucks. Right. Thank you very much. You can actually say, well, that gene therapy prevented the patient from having an outcome that would have cost the system a million dollars. Great. Let's, there's a, there's a value for the drug that's over and above sort of who pulled harder on the rope on the pricing mm -hmm. negotiation. So, I mean, I think we see a lot of use cases for data and analytics that should help personalize commercialization. They should help get the right drug into the right patient and hopefully at the right price and at a, a price that's really value creating for everybody. Mm -hmm. So those are just a couple of use cases where, for instance, we've worked with clients specifically on using data to enable those types of innovations on the commercial side.
Excellent. Hopefully that answers your question. No, absolutely. And it feeds, it segues perfectly into the next part of that because um, I was reading this piece that you wrote in uh, uh, Farm Executive um, about a month ago. It was entitled The Strategies for Success in Evolving Commercialization Landscape. And here you outline this, this really interesting phased launch approach strategy of the company and, and a lot of detail, actually. Um, and, and here, again, you, you talk about, okay, we, we normally think about the, the phases of clinical development. Here, you're talking about sort of you know as things have evolved um it's not all about as you put it uh, go big or go home there are things we learn along the way as we get out there in the market and and this concept of phased uh, introduction and it got me thinking well i'd love to hear about the approach but also you know one of the things again in the the trinity uh portfolio is sort of this real world evidence capability and, and this is another theme that's just so you know, whatever we call it, phase four or post-launch, whatever you want to call it, yes. we learn a lot in, in that. That's, you know, as, as much as phase three and all that stuff, there's a lot of things we learn as we get into the market. Talk a little bit about uh, this aspect as well, if you would. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good it's a good setup. So I think our hypothesis here is that, well, there are phases of clinical development for a reason. In phase one, you make sure your drug is safe and it's not hurt, hurting anybody. Right. In phase two, you figure out if your drug actually works and actually delivers the the value you think it should to the patient. And in phase three, you really optimize that and you really kind of measure it, right? How much is it working? How much might it be working vis-a-vis another drug? And then you let it out into the wide, wide world and launch. And all of a sudden launch is just this sort of free for all, you know, um, you know, sort of mayhem of trying to get the drug into the patient's hands. Mm-hmm. So our hypothesis is that there's something elegant about that three phase clinical development uh, timeline that we think in some ways you can kind of consider replicating in the commercial phase. You can think about your peri launch, call it T plus six months. That's your sort of testing the waters phase. That's the making sure that we've got somebody who's going to pay for our drug. Frankly, that's the time where you spend focused on the payers and showing them their clinical evidence, educating your key opinion leaders, kind of getting the 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 the, the top of the pyramid, so to speak, to understand your your position and finding out what's resonating, what's not resonating. Phase two, you move to a more sort of scaled launch. Now we're starting to ramp up commercially. Now you're putting reps in the field, you're putting omni-channel messages out across various different channels, and you're sort of testing. You're testing, is my campaign working? Is the message to the HCP working? Is the message to the patient working? And you're refining, you're refining and tweaking. And then you go for your full-scale launch. There's your phase three. There's your big sales forces, big spending. And, and it's a it's a smart spending because you learned from the first two phases about really what's making your drug resonate with customers out in the market, whether it's payers, patients, or HCPs. So rather than presuming at launch, you know that answer already. You don't. You don't know that answer. You don't know how the market is going to receive the drug. You don't know what the payers are going to do. Um, we do market research, and I'll tell you, you still don't know because it's a real-world situation that you kind of need to figure out. The problem is that so many little biotechs are not funded to have a three-year window to see if their drug is going to be successful, but that's what they need. You need time in the commercial post-launch to really see if that drug is is delivering the value it should. Now you mentioned real-world evidence. Yeah, I think there's a high correlate there with exactly what I'm saying. All along those phases, you're collecting data. You're not just collecting clinical data in a controlled setting like you did for clinical trials. You're collecting customer experience feedback. You're collecting 
insights into how the patient is, you know, dealing with side effects, how the patient is dealing with, you know, any titration that they might need to do. You're dealing with how the HCP needs to provide care beyond the pill, so to speak, to take care of that patient. You're learning through experience um, really what's working. So yes, um, we have an RWD practice that both uses traditional claims data, right, coming from insurers, but also unstructured um, evidence coming from these early launch phases to learn about the drug and the experience in the market and to fine tune the campaign. So yeah, I think that's spot on. I, I think we don't really know how the drug's going to perform in the market. No amount of market research, even though we do it, is really going to tell you how the market will receive the drug. You need to think about testing it, mm-hmm. testing the market, and then expanding. That's the premise of the phase launch. And, you know, some companies are already doing this. They're already doing this in spades. I mean, I, you know, Novo Nordis talks about this publicly, right? When they launch their obesity drug, right. they, they can't get it to all you know, 50% of people that are obese, they needed to start with a very sort of targeted launch of patients who need it the most, you know, then they're going to the payers, they're negotiating, they're figuring out how it's going to have access. Then they expand out to the key opinion leader network, the morbidly obese patients, they're learning, they're learning. It's not a perfect drug. There are some side effects. How do you get through that? And then they'll go to the full scale launch. They already do what they call a strike force launch. Hmm. which is a targeted launch at start, and then it expands, um, which is exactly what we're trying to encourage people to do. Now, look, if your drug saves babies, and I don't mean to take that lightly, but if your drug saves babies and you know it's going to save babies from, you know, outcomes that we don't want to talk about, go ahead and launch it with all you've got because that drug is going to be there. But the vast majority of drugs in our market these days are not like that, right? They are me betters. They are better than what's out there, but I think we need to really feel that out in the real market. So um, long story short, yes, we are big proponents in sustainable launches, sustainable approaches to market that don't just throw, you know, unnecessary resources at a launch that are not going to generate an ROI. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't know if and when we'll talk about the IRA and what that's going to do to the industry, um, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act and the pricing controls that the government's talking about. But, you know, if and where we start talking about that, pharma companies are going to have to be even more, even more disciplined and even more rational with Mm -hmm. what they're spending on their launches. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, again, another perfect segue. And you you, you stole my, my, my Zempic, um <laughs> question, but um, you, Leslie, made the case before about, you know, uh, when we talk about some of the things you're doing on the access and pricing side, and you gave the example of the, say, the gene therapy for a million dollars that saves $2 million over here and, and other costs. Um, when you come to some of these other, and I, another interesting, you wrote this other article, this was a couple of years ago in uh, Life Science Leaders, where you were talking about uh, the in-betweeners uh, and the fact that, you know, I think a lot of people in the public, you think either, you know, we either, in this industry, we either have trillion dollar blockbusters or we fail, but no, there's a lot of stuff in between uh, that are underachievers, but nonetheless, <laughs> we got to put them on the market. Um any other interesting insights with regard to access and pricing, whether it's something like Onozampic, where I think people are talking like, I mean, this could be, a, you know, it's, it's for weight loss, it's going to be for heart disease, there could be a dementia connection at some point, it could be for everybody at some point. Um, 
interesting I, pricing slash conversations that you need to <laughs> have with these folks, whether they have the ultimate blockbuster thing or whether they got these in-betweeners as you talk about um, and how that conversation kind of varies <laughs> uh, based on who you're consulting with. And sometimes you don't know what you've got. Right. You don't know. You might think, right? I mean, it's the whole uh, famous of, you know, no, nobody wants to call their own baby ugly, right? There's yeah. a lot of drugs that are in-betweeners. Yeah. And I think pharma companies thought we're going to be blockbusters. And, um, you know, it, it's hard to know, again, before you launch exactly how the market will receive the drug. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of in-betweeners. And those are the ones that even more so really require that phase launch approach, that launch yeah. approach that's that's learn, learn through an intensely data-driven phase of learning and, and then proceed and then proceed. I mean, I even look at a company like Biohaven which obviously yeah. had a great outcome in their acquisition by Pfizer, but man, that company was running deep in the red for pretty much its entire existence, right? They had Serena Williams and they had big Salesforce, right? And they were going big, they were going big. But if that company had had to stay alone and they hadn't had that outcome, I, I don't know if we would have looked back at that and said that that was a rational launch or that that was a successful launch. It certainly um, got them a good outcome, but there's a lot of companies that don't have that outcome, right? Because uh, you know that's not that's not their their fate. Um, so anyway, I do think there are in betweeners. I'd love to talk another time, maybe about back in phase two, back in you know go no go decisions for development in phase yeah. two and phase three. I'd love to see some of our pharma companies being a little bit more discerning about what drugs actually make it through to full development and it actually make it through to launch. I think we have a little bit of a broken value chain in that people really just want to accelerate drugs to market as fast as possible. They might not be developing the right drugs to begin with. They might not be developing them the right way to really show the value that they have, but I think that's a different topic. Um, you know, as it relates to something like Ozempic, yeah, yeah. I mean, what a molecule, semaglutide, right? I mean, it's, it's, let's put it in the water, I think. I don't know. Um, just kidding. Let's not put it in the water. But, you know, I, I think that's a perfect drug where the data is going to have to tell us what value it really brings to society, right? How are we going to rationalize everything you just said? It can fix your liver from a NASH perspective. It can fix your lipids from a, a cardiometabolic perspective. It can fix weight. It can fix glucose. Maybe it can even help you remember things better, right? I mean, what a value add to society, right? So right. I do think that we're going to need to use the data to help us really think about all the outcomes that that can avert mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. actually paying maybe one patient who's morbidly obese. Maybe there's a different pay structure than somebody who's using it for a different reason, right? Um, so, I mean, that's really hard to do in today's environment, especially in the U.S., but if we get smarter with data, we should be able to do that, right? We should mm -hmm. be able to really understand in a more personalized way what value a drug like Ozempic is bringing to each patient. Right. Tough one, though. I think there's there's a lot of me twos or me maybe betters that get through drug development these days. And I, my personal hypothesis is that we're going to see less of those because again, back to those pricing pressures, back to the government legislation limiting price. You can't just take price anymore. We can't just, that's not a game that we can play anymore. So mm -hmm. I think pharma companies are going to have to be more discriminating in, in what drugs actually make it through to the, you know, 
$500 million phase three uh, phase and, mm -hmm. and, you know, not just pushing things along in a sort of blind effort to get things to market faster. Mm -hmm. What um, other trends, let's say, I mean, we talked about obviously the small molecule to biologic to, to cellular therapy uh, track. Um, we hear a lot about things uh, we've talked on the show about repurposing a lot lately about, you know, all these generics out there that may be good for disease A that have never been tested in B, C, and D. Uh, we have the whole digital therapeutics thing coming online, the companion diagnostics. What, what, what else gets you excited just from, you know, obviously you see all this stuff as a consultant to these companies, but, you know, what are the things do you like, ah, you know, uh, that um is is an interesting trend and you'd like to see um you know what happens in five ten years now what are what are some of the other uh hot areas that uh, you foresee at trinity that uh, we shall be keeping an eye on yeah i mean geez where to start um a couple of things that i think get get us really excited is is this concept of value-based care right okay. um the fact that you know Really, we can be paying for healthcare based on performance, yeah. um, not just at the HCP level, but also for the drugs. Mm -hmm. So back to your sort of, um, you know, your companion diagnostics, your digital therapeutics. What if it's not that we're paying for the diagnostic as a fee for service? We're paying for the diagnostic because it enabled the right drug that kept a patient alive for an extra right. year, Right. And that diagnostic, but now on the other hand, maybe the diagnostic didn't help, in which case there's no value. Um, it's 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 a little bit sort of science fiction uh, relative to, I think, the way money transacts in the economy these days. But, um, you know, I do think we talk a lot about how even just little bits of this value-based care can really kind of come to the forefront um, with the data that we have available to us and with mm -hmm. the thinking. I mean, you know... I, we talk a lot about a lot about that. We talk a lot about you know, digital therapeutics. You can, you know, we could we could spend an hour on that alone. How do you pay for right. what does most people feels like a video game? Exactly. Um, I don't know. I would pay big dollars for my Sudoku every, you know, every day. But um, you know, it's tough to I think those depending on the extent of value that they can prove, right? I think we're gonna have to see more almost over-the-counter considerations, direct to consumer right? Not going through the payer. I think we're going to see more direct to consumer for these, what I'll call maybe less sophisticated therapies, right? Where the patient can potentially take them directly, right? And I think that there has to be a whole market for that. Um, so there's a lot going on. Um, but one one particular, we haven't really talked about this on a global health level, but okay. um, a really interesting one that I'm, I'm personally passionate about is how do we get the drugs, forget the US, forget Europe, forget Japan. How do we get these drugs into sub-Saharan Africa? How do we get right. these drugs into Southeast Asia? And I, I think one of the neatest new mechanisms that I've seen is just IP transfer, right? It's that simple um, that if you're not going to launch or make money in sub-Saharan Africa, why don't you let somebody else make some money? So we see right. pharma companies essentially turning over IP through um, things like the medicines patent pool and some other vehicles that that then enable the drug to be produced and distributed in places it wouldn't otherwise be. So, and that's just a little bit more of a do good for the world. Um, but, you know, I think something that we have to remember, that's what we're here for. Yeah. No, I, 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 I remember back in the day them saying, you know, we are 
here we us here in the U.S. are going to be a smaller and smaller part of that pie uh, ultimately. And so, no, that's uh, the global health angle here is uh, is extremely important to keep in mind. So, no, I appreciate you brought that up. Um, let's see what what else is coming up that we should know about Patrinity as we get close to twenty twenty four. Any public facing stuff, conferences, talks you're going to be giving, places we can yeah. run into you. Um, Please. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll be at all the conferences. I'll be at Piper Sandler. I'll be at Jeffrey's um, in London. I'll be at JPM uh, when it comes. And, and you know, we'll, we'll be at ASCO and ASH and, and all the big congresses. But I think what you're going to see us talking about a lot in the next year is, is this topic of selecting the right drug for development in clinical phases. So you talked about our, our launch. You know, we spent a lot of time really thinking hard and whiteboarding and brainstorming about how to help the industry improve launch performance, which has resulted in some of the white papers that you've referenced today, has resulted mm-hmm. in the conversation we had today. But we're going to really turn our attention in the next year to, to really thinking about how do we help our pharma clients say no to more drugs and to therefore um, enable the right drugs to actually make it through. I don't think we see the concept of commercialization coming enough to the forefront early enough in clinical development. So um, I think the thesis will really be how do you, frankly, being very objective, using, you know, AI, using generative Mm -hmm. AI in particular to really help us think about, um, you know, how much better does the drug need to be in order to really be viable in the commercial market. So you'll see some more white papers from us on this concept of picking the right drug to develop Mm -hmm. um, before, you know, before launch and and well before um, hopefully all the clinical expenditures. Um, I think you're also going to see us being, um, you know, I think we have developed at Trinity um, a patient centricity center of excellence, and you are going to see us um, putting out a lot of of thought leadership on how to make sure we are truly being patient-centric in our drug development and commercialization. I think a lot of people say they are. Mm-hmm. And when they say, oh, we're so patient-centric, we talk to five patients and we know the answer. That is just not enough in today's game and uh, today's day and age. So um, you'll see some, some thought leadership from us as well on what does it really mean to be patient-centric for drug development and commercialization? How do we really put our money where our mouth is on having equitable access to medicines? How do we make sure that, um, you know, inner city black patients are having the same access to medicines that, you know, we see in suburban white populations, which again, we can see in the data. Um, So, um, you know, I think that's that's part of pharma's responsibility as well um, in, in the whole industry. So, so stay tuned for some white papers from us on that front um, as mm-hmm. we can really try to put the data to the test of, of you know, keeping us honest on, on metrics around health equity and, um, and making sure that we're doing the right thing. Excellent. Really excellent. Um, let's see what one last thing while I have you, um, and I know nothing about sailing but I, I did check out the dartmouth website and the, <laughs> the, the, the sailing team and they look like pretty big boats but um do you, do you do much sailing nowadays do you get uh out on the water to uh to relieve the stress of chief of that kid of offerness <laughs> oh, uh t- tell yeah. us a little bit about what yeah, you know. yeah well uh you know maybe not as much sailing as i should be i've got two little girls so we do a lot of water activities but um 
really my my oldest is doing some racing so i'm more of a racer what we call a racer chaser now i'm chasing around mm. after her while she's doing the racing but but my personal mantra um for life i think and maybe it's evolved a little bit but it's a trifecta of a day you need to work work out and go out now you can pick that any three ways you want but we work we got to keep ourselves healthy and we got to have fun so mm -hmm. yes we have a lot of fun um and hopefully uh, i'll be doing some more sailing personally um and also racer chasing my uh, my little girls around outstanding Really great discussion, Leslie. Um, exciting again, as I mentioned at the beginning, because we, we usually don't go into the commercial world when we have our discussions about innovation, but clearly um, you're doing amazing things on, on all these fronts in terms of innovation and registration and commercialization and reimbursement. And it's just really exciting and uh, a very refreshing theme with all the, the early development work we do, but really great stuff. Um, uh, for everybody, again, that's going to be watching um, this episode of uh, our show across uh, on the YouTube channel or listening uh, across the various podcasts. Uh, you've been listening to Leslie Orn, President and Chief Executive Officer, Trinity Life Sciences. Leslie, again, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to come talk to us, uh, educate us on everything you're up to. Uh, obviously, thank you for what you do. And as we like to say on our show here, thanks for creating a better tomorrow via what you do. Really great story and uh, very impressive work you're doing in growing that company. Thanks so much, Ira. Thanks for having me. It's been a great conversation. Good seeing you.